cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be with you for the next hour. Apologies if the, the voice is a bit rough today. I'm not feeling too great, so Med Lemon is powering me through. As usual, together for the next hour, loving the tweets on at DM Show ZA, joined in studio by my comrade Greg Nicholson. How you doing? Good. It's been a while, so it's nice to be back. It does feel like ages, so it's lovely, lovely to be back in the in the in the chair. And joined by Daily Maverick journalist Richard Poblack, aka Trainspotter. How you doing? Good, good, good to be here. And a special, special guest, executive director of Amantla.mobi, Koketso Moeti. How are you? Hello, good, good, good. Wonderful. Um, so first, let's talk a bit about gangster movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Richard, I know you've been watching a couple over the past few days. I have, I have. Yeah, it's it's, it's funny. I, uh, you know, when I started thinking about this whole Sean Abrams thing. Now, Sean Abrams, for those of you who don't know, uh, is the guy currently trying to destroy the country um, with the most, let's say, oomph. Uh, he's the uh, head of the uh, National Prosecuting Authority, and uh, of course, I, I was sort of trying to trying to think about analogies for for how how, how Advocate Abrahams operates. And the first thing that came to mind was that opening scene to Goodfellas, the classic Martin Scorsese uh, gangster film. Because what happens in this opening scene is that you have, <laughs> we have our three main gangster protagonists in a, in, in a car driving in rural New York's uh, New York State. And there's a thumping from the boot of the car. So they stop and they get out and there's a guy who they've obviously tried to kill already. Mm. He's all bloodied, but he's still alive. So they shoot into the back of the car and stab him viciously. Um, close the hood, go and visit one of the main gangsters' mums, mum for, for, for dinner. Um, and the guy still refuses to die. And it's sort of what, what this sort of prompted in me, and I went back and watched the film again. It, it, that's the exact feeling of what it's like to live within a gangster state. You, you know, you're trying to shoot this pretty much the treasury, right? That's that that's the analogy, at least to how I saw it. You're trying to shoot this tre- you're trying to stab it to death, close the boot, drive away. It's still alive. It's still thumping. Um, but there are just so many moving parts that the gangsters who are running this place currently um, just can't quite kill the one person. Or position they need to kill, and that is the head of the uh, the head of the finance ministry. I mean, there does seem to, and you've, I think, Greg, you mentioned this in your article too. There just seem to be an air of, of incompetence about about at least the most recent charges that were dropped yesterday. So I think it was twenty twenty one days ago, something like that. There was the big press conference, lots of drama, mm. and you could tell it was Sean Abrams' moment. He was yep. like the days of disrespecting the NPL over. That's, the that's got to be, me. That has to be the line of 2016. And this has been a terrible year all over the world. But I mean, that's got to be the line of 2016. The days of disrespecting the National Prosecuting Authority are over. They, they, love, they just begun, actually. I also love the buck stops with me because I was in that press conference yesterday. Mm. And that was the complete opposite thing he was saying. It's like, no, you have to understand with the MPA, there's multiple levels. We've got regional officers, provincial officers, and I don't make these decisions. These other guys make these decisions. Mm. It was hilarious. Yeah, he couldn't be blamed for, you know, trying to, trying to destroy the economy of the country. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's complete ridiculousness. And, uh, that's what sort of prompted me to Goodfellas because, you know, what's so wonderful about that, that film is that it, it, it accurately merges this feeling of brutality and incompetence, of real, real danger and total, total idiocy, which sort of combine to form any kind of gangster or organized crime syndicate, um, which unfortunately is what the country is right now. A big part of, of, of the, the dropping of the charges yesterday seemed to rest on this one, one legal opinion. Greg, I always mispronounce the name of the, of the SARS employee. I think it's, it's Flock, uh, Symington, or Symington. Mm-hmm. There you go. Who wrote this go. one and there was this crazy hostage or people describing it as a hostage situation that happened, happened last week where he was trying to get the email and he's recording the, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is part of the incompetence side or this is just a desperation coming through. Well, both. I yeah. mean, this is the thing. When you have so many balls in the air, right, and you literally – you have a legal – the legal grounds on which they were going to prosecute uh, Gordon and his two uh, – and his uh, deputy commissioner and the commissioner of, of SARS was so preposterous and so thin and had no actual legal intellectual framework to stand on that they had to start scrambling to figure out how they're going to win this case because there was no way they were going to do it. 
is simply no way it would get turfed out and it was going to be another complete disaster and another total waste of taxpayers' money. So I guess what you, what you have to do then is start to go scrambling for effectively fake evidence. And the best way to do that is through, you know, low-level intimidation tactics like the ones we saw take place uh, just a few days ago. Absolutely. Now, Koketsu, turning to you, I mean, you're in the business of, of, you know, mobilizing interest, um, support, energy, uh, Towards the important issues happening in the country, and I'm curious how much, how much of the charges being dropped yesterday, and 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 yeah, how much of the charges being dropped yesterday do you think is as a result of of public outcry from civil society, from regular individuals? How much do you think comes from just that that level of interest and outcry around around protecting the treasure? Probably a lot of it, hey. But I would, I should probably disclose yeah. that what interests me is not quite the NPA, which is quite covered. Yeah. It's the response to Pravin facing these charges, mm. right? Um, when an injustice is done, we have to stand up against it, you yeah. know, because next thing, if spurious charges are laid against anyone, they could come after us at any moment. We don't have to put someone on a pedestal and make them seem like an absolute angel to know that something is wrong. I mean, some of the stuff that we're at, we saw the new newspaper headlines, the Che Guevara of South Africa, you know. So who said that? <laughs> please name it. <laughs> which newspaper said that? Because they're going to get a call. Yeah, yeah. please name it, Che. That's, that's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. There were quite a number of them, and what this ignores is things like Prophet Gordon and the um, <laughs> beret. <laughs> on a Google it. Just now. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing like this man. The treasury does need to be protected, but it has to also be acknowledged that treasury has been a problem. I mean, we've seen problems in terms of social security spending, where grants haven't gone up in real terms, haven't even met inflation rates, and so on. You know, and it's not to say that it makes the charges okay or anything, but what I'm basically getting at is that indeed we should stand up against injustice but not do it at the at at the pretense of pretending that someone is absolutely okay and yeah the institution itself is like a hundred percent perfect but this is what is so terrible about what has been happening to you know this this constant assault on the treasury effectively what we've seen in the last year is what wonks call the a word now, it's not pronounced here in South Africa, but effectively what we've been on is an austerity program. Oh. Right? Um, <laughs> everybody looked at me. Like Jesus. Yeah, like, yeah. This is proctology. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Maverick. Uh, you know, it is, is an austerity program. Now, here in South Africa, we don't discuss economic policy because we're too busy discussing the shenanigans that our leaders are up mm-hmm. to. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that under Gordon, over the last 10, 10 or so months since he, was, since he was reinstated, what we've been looking at is an undiscussed undebated austerity program which has started to shut down elements of the social democratic state insofar as we have one it, it with regard to what we could call a light structural adjustment package if you want to call it that um you know which seems imposed by by ideas that are very very much outside of what i think most south africans would like to claim as their own and i think it's getting worse in terms of how much we discuss these policy issues because when like right now, we've got this perfect play, right, with these different characters. And so, and it gets so heated and the society's so divided that everyone just splits into two camps. Mm-hmm. You either almost sort of blindly support the finance minister, or you say, Who is no. a god? <laughs> an unassailable, <laughs> uh, unassailable <laughs> angel. Yeah. No, so you either sort of just back him because you think this is the last, there's this narrative that this is the last guy, um, standing in front of complete and utter looting of the state. Um, or, or a somewhat sort of functioning state where we can hopefully try to move ahead. I think that's mm. sort of what some people see it as. Other people see it as, you know, this guy has to face his time in court too. Um, we, he's, he's backed by white minority capital. He's, um, all these sort of other allegations on the other side, mm. but it, there's two sides and there's very little in between, I think. And so it just gets so much worse in terms of trying to discuss what you're saying is actual mm-hmm. policy issues. So things like from the budget last week, those little said, I think, about how much our tax revenue is going to be declining, you know, in, from, from even February predictions. And that's one of the key things that we're going through with the country right now. And the whole country, I think, we're getting to this point where it's been, what, 20, 22 odd years in, into democracy. And there's a lot of things coming up that people realize isn't working. People want, changes and they want them fast and they're unhappy with, with what's going on 
instead of discussing these changes and how we can actually implement them, we're caught up in this melodrama. I think part of the problem is that there's a tendency, I mean, even the narratives around this has drawn it as it's either black or white. We don't see the different shades of gray that are going on in between, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what it is. There's different shades of gray. Um, And if we look at just a lot of the wording that has been used, you know, about this being the greatest threat to democracy and all of that, it neglects the fact that inequality itself is a huge threat to democracy. So you can sustain all these institutions as much as you want. But the reality is that a lot of the divisions between us as a society are underpinned by economic division, you know. And the moment you don't address that, but your institutions are kept in place, you still face possible threats of eruptions within the state. 100%. I mean, the only way you address inequality is through policy. Right. We don't discuss policy in this country. And and I love your statement about nuance. I mean, Mm. South Africa, come for the big five, stay for the utter lack of nuanced discourse. Right. I I mean, that's now, interestingly, the the last time I encountered Pravin Gordon prior to his reinstatement as the finance minister Mm. was on that interministerial task force team called Operation Fiela. Remember that, which yeah. had been assembled oh, yeah. in yeah. order to governance minister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and what he was there blabbing. Uh, Jeffrey Deb was, there, of course, um, and uh, and you know a whole bunch of the other mouth breathing, uh, you know, um, state security hacks were there explaining to us at GCIS um, about how brilliant Operation Fiela was and and what an excellent idea this interministerial dragnet was, which was effectively a a task force that had been assembled to try and quash a any any real discussion about the xenophobia problem and any real attempt to deal with the xenophobia problem by mm. God forbid instituting policy would address, which would address the under, you know the undergirding inequalities that cause this problem in the first place. And it's worth noting that Fiela is a Setswana word for sweep. These are human beings that we're talking about. The idea that responding to serious big issues is through sweeping clean people, you know, like clean them off our streets. What the hell is that? And and uh, Gordon, along with a number of the other ministers, some of whom are now claiming to be, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, you know, among the stalwarts who are who are saying, you know, this has all been so terrible, um, we're we're endorsing that narrative. Right. So I don't know. I, I was not among uh, the numerous South Africans who were jumping up and down when Gordon was reinstated. I mean, he's a he he has a lot, a lot to answer for. And he's not answering for any of it. And he never will. Indeed. And just to expand it a bit, mm. I mean, you can see right now also who is coming up in support of Gordon. Right. Um, we saw the CEO pledge that was recently signed. <laughs> and it's interesting who signed it. So according to this pledge, it mentions transformation, it mentions social justice, and it mentions inequality. But some of these companies, Exaro being an example, has been involved in forcefully relocating people in the past. We look at some of these corporates have failed to transform their management structures. We look at the increasing inequality between the highest paid managers and the lowest paid, you know. So it's given them away, and I just saw the response was, wow, it's about time business got involved. Actually, that's not getting involved. There are practical things that business can be doing to address some of the fundamental issues that bring us to where we are. But instead, we're playing in this there's almost a certain level of duplicity about it, you know, where you can take this pledge and preach about democratic institutions, preach about democracy and all of that, while maintaining and protecting this deep, deep system, very, very rotten system of inequality. Yeah, I think the record from the from the I think it was a press statement was that everybody who signs was standing up for social justice and transformation, so that South Africa truly becomes a country that belongs to all who live in it. I don't even know what social justice and transformation mean anymore. I mean, do they mean anything? You know, if you have what was it, eighty one CEO? Eighty one. What is the CEO? When did the CEO become superstar? They're like the Michael Jacksons of South Africa when they do a sleep out. Okay, you, you know, and they they drink those little marshmallow, chuck, you know, cocoa drinks, and then they wear their little beanies, and they dress up like homeless people. We're supposed to applaud, you, you know. It's like when did these guys become our rock stars? It's unbelievable. And I think what's also interesting is that it ignores the reality that any amount of excess in a society such as ours is derived 
on the backs of those with less, you know. So what they're doing essentially is rendering these words meaningless, where I can preserve my excess, never lose my excess, still keep you that way. But here I am being mm. the Michael Jackson of your country. Yeah. Yeah. I find the... So I think when we look at who's stood up, we've got these A1 CEOs, mm-hmm. Dr. Gordon, we've got a whole lot of ANC stalwarts mm. who some of them have been speaking out for a little while. You know, if you look at your Achmed Kathradas and, mm-hmm. and some of those guys who have been speaking out, you know, for a few years at least on certain issues. You've got some some guys who have been speaking out just more recently, perhaps like Jackson Dembo, mm-hmm. who, who all of a sudden seems to have... Found know, a conscience. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Mm. Is there... but. Behind everybody, we can draw um, some sort of self-interest motivations. Motivations Let's of self-interest. An agenda. Mm. An agenda. Mm. <laughs> Do we have any real? Is there anyone who's just standing up for their own like actual belief in the country, or is that just a complete fallacy and imagination? Like what? What I'm saying is, are we stuck on this cycle of everyone standing up for their own agendas, and so? Whatever happens, we're just going to get someone else's agenda coming in, but they actually don't have anyone else but their own interests at heart. Well, I mean, call me totally cynical, yeah. but I believe that anyone who's made who's made a statement from the ANC camp is looking to is is making a political play. Okay, so they um, see that perhaps the tide is turning, and they want to make sure they're on the right team. Or it's a political play. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure they have consciousness. I'm sure they're all wonderful people. Um, and they have done wonderful things. I mean, a, a number of them contributed to the liberation of this country. And for that, we are eternally grateful. That said, right now, it's a political play. And saying that it's anything but that is absolute hogwash. Okay, so when you see Jackson Temple on air <laughs> saying the NEC must design, what do you think? Or even even the EFF also marching, yeah. you know, they're going to be marching Pretoria it's tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think um, there's Save Our South Africa. There's there's Nelson Mandela Foundation, I think, just just before yeah, we went just, on air, released, yeah. released just quite a heavy with, statement yeah. um, condemning state capture and so on. Mm. I think there's a lot of grandstanding that's going on. It's about mm. political play. It's about performing a certain mm. level of conscience. Mm. It's performing because this is what the audience wants to hear, you know, but it's not genuine. If it was genuine, one, some of the problems we have would have been addressed a long time ago, actually, when people had something to lose, they would have said, actually, this is not right. Mm. This is something I should stand up against. And I think that's, for me, one of the ways I always gauge it, right? When you stand up against injustice, but you stand to lose nothing, that it becomes very questionable, you know, especially when you were part of forming the problem in the first place. And a lot of people, we've seen the narratives around Zuma and how people distance themselves and so on, you know, as if nobody was there, as if he elected himself, as if some of the things he is accused of doing, he actually manually, physically did them all by himself Mm -hmm. and there was nobody else at play. And I call this the boogeyman myth, you know. In South Africa, we love this idea of boogeyman, the idea there's there's this one rotten individual and to protect ourselves, we're all going to gang up and, you know, find our consciences against him. But actually... A whole lot of people who are going to be part of this all tomorrow, who have been standing up in support of Pravin, are part of the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, Richard, you referenced in your article, I think that there was there was no one who who was part of the apartheid state, no one who supported it, no one who, <laughs> and you just get to reinvent yourself, perhaps in modern day South Africa. Yeah, you no, get it's, to just it's amazing. Suddenly, no, be, no one, yeah, no one, yeah, is at fault for apartheid. No one. I mean, the guys who, <laughs> the guys who ran the show have foundations and think tanks. You know, they get Nobel Peace Prizes. It's amazing. You know, this is the state, the, the universal capital of unaccountability, right? No one ever does any time. It's amazing. You, you know, so I don't know. To, to be shocked by what, what, what Sean Abrahams did yesterday, hmm. that is South Africa 101. That's what you do. You know, things, something went wrong. I don't know how. It's weird. You know, we subjugated 40 million people for, you know, 400 years. I don't know. It was someone else. It was that guy. You know, and, and the, all of the stuff, it just perpetuates itself. It perpetuates itself. No one ever does any time. No one ever goes to jail. Right? So, you know, um, and, and, and now we have, you know, now we have people facing zero consequences, you know, standing on a political line, you know, and saying, Zuma must go. Or words to that effect, or dog whistled words to that sort of effect. So yeah, it's all just a bit dispiriting, I suppose. So 
So do you think this whole, I mean, a lot of people are calling for heads to roll, whether that be Sean Abrams or whether that, you know, Zuma must resign. Do you think that's just, you know, there's, there's really just no point and perhaps our efforts are best used in another way? <laughs> I think that yeah. um, it, it's quite, it becomes difficult, right? Because heads have never rolled. Like yeah. Richard said, we have a culture of heads not rolling, you know? So from the outside, you look and you wonder why must particular heads roll when the other heads haven't rolled for X, Y, Z. Do you know what that, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And what this, what this creates is almost a sense of, it's like there's a hierarchy of struggles or injustices in South Africa, you know? And this is why you need a constant culture of accountability, irrespective of who it is, whether it's the boogeyman or whether it's not the boogeyman, you know? But I think in this case, yeah. Um, surely then an organization like yours, Amandla.mobi, really does, um, fill an important function in society because they, I don't think we should say, say Sean Abrahams or, or any other higher sort of government, mm. let's say Mosabenzi Mos- uh, Mos- Zwane, yeah. the, the mineral resources minister gets found out or, or let's say the public protector says that he got, um, he helped the Guptas by Glencore. Well, I mean, so that, that company from Glencore. Um, I don't think we should say that because Marikana widows haven't had haven't had justice yet, we should let the the mineral resources minister off the hook. Mm. I think there are a lot of people that are going to be trying to call for the charging of the mineral resources minister, as well as Sean Abrahams, as well as a lot of other high profile mm. individuals. Mm. But then we need other people in society, and hopefully increasingly more, to also join on other causes. And that's mm. where I think you guys mm. actually come into play quite well because you rally around causes that. In that hierarchy, because it is a hierarchy of, of, or at least how, how our society views these issues because of the history here, because of our class and racial inequalities. Some issues are highly, highly preferenced or highly sort of focused on mm-hmm. and others are completely neglected. 100%. So I think organizations like yours as, and also us as journalists here have a key role in trying to highlight some of these other issues and push them forward. While, while these other issues also like, like these very high profile issues will naturally get attention. No, without a doubt. I mean, one of the interesting things that's been happening, I'm sure you know about the Robertson workers mm. strike that's currently going on. Can you tell us more? On. Just break that down for us, please. And <laughs> we're talking about Rand wine now. Merchant Bank. Now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> Rand Merchant Bank hosted WineX, you know, a premier event on the South African wine calendar last week. Yeah. And the event kicked off on the same day that the workers strike hit its ninth week. And the workers, you know, they're currently earning between 2,900 and 3,200 in a country where to feed a nutritionally balanced diet to five people you need 3,027. Doesn't include toiletries, education costs and so mm-hmm. on, right? What was very fascinating is the workers have been calling on for solidarity mm-hmm. and here's Rand Mer- Merchant Bank, whose CEO signed the pledge giving Robertson Winery a platform of this nature to show off their wines. And it's, yeah, there's just this disconnect. I think there needs to be more that's done to connect the different issues together, you know, because it's also unthinkable that this happened just after Sweden and Denmark pulled some of the wines off their shelves, the, some of the supermarkets. I mean, and in a Robertson's workers has been well covered. You know, nobody can say that they don't know, at least not Rand, Rand Merchant Bank. So it, it's just unthinkable. And it again just shows the duplicity of the responses, you know, the duplicity of taking on signing a social justice pledge. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, th- there's all sorts of horrible, horrible blind alleys and cul-de-sacs with, with dangerous men with weapons waiting for you in them because, you know, if we get this downgrade, that's we'll a back terminal. to the gangster. We must not stray far from, from good fellows at all costs. Um, you, you know, one of the things that's so terrible about the, about this whole finance ministry debacle is that a mm. downgrade would, would be a terminal event for this country. And whom it would affect worst is, of course, those exact same Robertson, mm. uh, Robertson uh, wine workers who are being forgotten largely because of all the fuss over the finance minister. So we find ourselves in this ter- terrible situation that seems almost designed yeah. for us to forget about the most marginalized people in society um, who <laughs> who are at, at threat from, you, you know, two things in the main right now mm. that get zero co- – well, one that gets a lot of coverage. If If we're downgraded, the poor in this country are screwed. That's it, okay, for a decade at least, all right? The second – 
is this drought that no one seems to be thinking about, mm. right? It's like, what drought? Now, I traveled down, down to Durban about uh, two weeks ago from, from mm. Joburg. This, this country is dry as all hell. We don't discuss it. We don't discuss climate change. We don't discuss how that is going to affect workers. We don't discuss the very real climate issues that are coming down the pipeline towards us so fast and that are going to change the trajectory of this country. We don't fold that into policy and Mm. we don't interrogate the finance minister about it because, well, the dude's trying to avoid getting arrested every second day. So, you know, this is, this is a dangerous situation, you know, full of dangerous blindnesses. I love the fact that you use the word design, right? Because that's exactly what it is. The system is designed to operate in such a way Mm -hmm. that those who are forgotten remain forgotten. There's always something else. There's Mm. always one more distraction. And that's the problem I have with even how we discuss inequality in this country, right? It's almost as if it's a given there's no winners in the situation. There's nobody who's working to protect the access that it just happened. I mean, even if you look at the narrative of inequality, right, when we show the stories, we always tell the story of the poor black girl, but not the person whose excess is coming straight off her back. And I think that's something we don't talk about the full ecosystem and which brings us back to the policy, the high level kind of like economic policy stuff that's going on. And we need to shift that. Um, how when, when reporting, I'm not thinking about reporting and mobilizing around, you know, inequality. How do we how do we find a way to sort of reignite interest and outrage around it when without without it being Sort of oversimplified to, you know, people talking about Alex and Santa, you know, people talking mm-hmm. about the need for social, social transformation. I feel like it gets oversimplified to these quotables and these, and we all kind of just take it as a given that, yeah, it's pretty terrible. Inequality is terrible. So as people mobilizing for change, as journalists, how, how do you, re- how do you refresh and keep an issue burning and outrageous when it's been dis- perhaps been over discussed or perhaps it's been now become part of our daily lives? How do we? Especially while we're yeah. dealing with so many outrageous issues right. where people um, sort of have a, a fatigue of scandals. Mm-hmm. Well, well, again, it feels like yeah. part of the design, doesn't it? <laughs> All the stuff that's getting thrown at us, yeah. you know, we, there, there's so many issues we can't actually uh, actually discuss and no issues we can discuss in any real depth. I mean, as someone who would like to think of themselves as an investigative reporter, that's not something I do very often anymore because I just don't have the time. You know, there's so many, you know, paintballs coming my way mm. that, you know, it's duck, run and cover. Right to to deal with the, the the constant stream of crises in a nanosecond by nanosecond news cycle, but I love the term that you use, and that's ecosystem. Now, the interesting thing about an ecosystem is that you need to be able to tell this much much wider narrative. Yeah. You need to go from the underprivileged girl all the way to the top to see how the how the bucks at the top are generated, right? And I think so few journalists in this country understand how that ecosystem works in any given industry, and I think we're undertrained especially when it comes to how business functions in this country. We tend to have this, we tend to have this notion that it's all kind of magic and we should just shut up and, and ignore it. Um, that it's, you know, that the CEOs, the genuine rock stars of this country have it all kind of figured out. Um, and that works the way it's supposed to work. You know, we don't really question neoliberal neoliberalism in any real way in this country. I mean, we'll scream about it and throw rocks, but mm. we don't really, really get down into how it functions. We even seem to understand how it functions, mm. right? And once again, this brings us back to Gordon. We're not interrogating the policies that he's put that he's put in place that a undermine the rights of workers. They just do. They're not strong enough. There's no minimum wage in this country, right? Or no real effective one. We haven't talked about a minimum income. In, in this country, which is something that I feel we should have been talking about 10 years ago. All of these very, very real issues get swept away. We don't talk about them. We don't understand them. And they just, they're left to dry in the drought. Just to pick up where you left off, something I'm also quite interested in is a maximum income. You know, <laughs> what's interesting about inequality is that it gives us the ability to control the lives so much of those who earn the least, right? I mean, the Where, grants, the, the minimum yeah. income and so and on. even yeah. just the idea of a minimum, what is the bare minimum that someone needs? But why aren't we interrogating what is the maximum? What does one individual do with a hundred million? Do you know what I mean? And even what you're saying about the full ecosystem and not checking it out. I mean, just in terms of... um. Mm. 
if you look at the profits versus people saying they can't pay properly, you yeah. know, if you look at the conditions right now with the drought, in the last three months, food prices have gone up by over 15%. That should scare us and deeply. It, and it's even more for some of the, the staple foods, I think. Indeed, yeah. indeed, far more. And what we have, we know we have a history of cartels in this country. Yeah. Again, the drought can be used by business, you know, of to course. further deepen mm. the crisis. And these aren't things we are interrogating enough. I mean, I've got kids and it was very interesting. The price of potatoes, milk and eggs in just too much of a short space of time. I'm sorry. Potatoes at 74 rand. I'm going to quit potatoes. Mm. I don't want those potatoes, you know? <laughs> every every time my, my daughter grabs for the milk bottle, I'm like, ooh, do we, do we need that? You've grown a lot in the past year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's hold that off. Um, you're 100% right. Uh, you know, uh, again, it comes down to the, the, the fact that we just, you know, we just simply aren't asking the right questions anymore. Yeah, uh, I, sort of I was thinking about this this morning. So if yeah. we continue with the idea of business and how how we interrogate some of the issues around, you mentioned cartels, right? Mm. So in one of the papers this morning, there was a story about I think it's the city of Cape Town. Um, ta- yeah, and it's actually no, it's the city of Cape Town taking those. I think it's the five construction companies who colluded to to raise prices for the World World Cup yeah. um, stadium rebuilds and refurbishments. Mm. Um, they're taking those companies, I think, to court, I think, to get paid some of the money back. So this is the first time I've heard of that. It's the first time, the, at least this article said, that there was a municipality trying to get their money back. But then, so in the past, what's happened with these companies is that I think the Consumer Commission first, I think they fined them something like $2.5 billion, I think, together. And then later on, they committed to, I think, a $1.2 or $1.4 billion um, rand sort of like transformation to, to help – Build and boost transformation. So that's what the, that's what's happened so far. But as I was reading this this morning, I realized how how little we talk about it beyond these little articles. And I think the construction companies and these these cartels and what happened in, with the 20, 2010 stadium rebuilds, it's always sort of held up and is, as an example of how we never look at the private sector and we never look at private sector corruption. But I often think there there are some people like the article I'm reading today. These things are mentioned. Mm-hmm. Often, I think people even miss those little articles just on on the brief updates. Mm. But I think one of the key problems is the follow on effect. So you don't see journalists or, or many people writing these big op eds, opinion pieces about whether that two point five billion is enough that they got, whether Johannesburg and other cities must also follow suit and and now try to reclaim this money from these companies. Mm. Um, we don't see, or we don't see enough of articles discussing laws around, or, or, or the function of of the competition commission. Oh, hundred percent. Like, like, like but, who, but who mean, knows what the hell? Yeah, like, like there's very few happens. People, at the but, but I'll, t- I'll commission. tell you exactly how the competition yeah. commission mm. works because we did that big uh, SAB Miller piece mm. for uh, for Daily Maverick. Oh, and yeah. to say that yeah. we to say that we never take on private sector corruption, I think is no, yeah, in, in our paper we do we do that uh, we do that a lot. Um, but but once again, what we're talking about, I think, is the big picture ecosystem interrogation, which is which is very very difficult. Now, the interesting thing about the Competition Commission is that it was set up and lobbied very very heavily by big business, especially SAB Miller, in order to try and let's say nudge some of the more circumspect people who were building the competition regulation at the time to nudge them towards the understanding that bigger is better, right? And now, one of the most circumspect among um, among that number at the time was mm. Trevor Manuel, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And Trevor Manuel, where is he right now? South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we come back full circle, don't we? Yeah. To the finance ministry position and someone who was courageously against all odds, as, as, <laughs> you know, as a director at Rothschilds, came out in support of Pravin Gordon. Ladies and gentlemen, the plot thickens. <laughs> I think we're into the third act of Goodfellas already. Yeah, this is. I'm, I'm actually gonna watch this movie now. Like I can't. Like seen I can't, it, I've seen it before, but like probably ten yeah. years. It's ago. such a. It's such yeah. a good movie. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. like yes, yeah. Yeah. Like, don't watch Casino afterwards, which I did. You know, okay. I was thinking, you know, I can run with this analogy for the rest of my career. I could just, you know, follow Scorsese films. And then I watched Casino. It is just the worst, terrible movie. Okay. But anyways, we, we digress. I want to switch a bit to Fismos Four. Um, mm-hmm. 
Some people are saying It's all about the ecosystem It's all about the ecosystem Let's just stick with that Do you, do you even need to ask? <laughs> Some people are saying There's going to be a big loss of momentum now A lot of the institutions have said They're, they're done with the academic calendar And done with mm-hmm. just few exams Exams will happen either now And some in January And that, you know, big opportunities to disrupt Have kind of finished off And it's going to peter out at least You know, for this year it's pretty much done Until the students find a way to mobilize again next year and I'm curious about what what your thoughts are around just looking back on 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 this year's sort of round of round of protest and mobilization, if we can call it around. And has anything been achieved? Um, where do we find ourselves sort of closing closing 2016 in terms of fees must fall, the universities, the Ministry of Higher Education, and so on? Okay, so let's hear it. So, fees must fall, yep. very polarizing topic Absolutely. these days, you know, because again, everybody wants the black or the white, no shades of gray. What have the 81 CEOs said about it? <laughs> Let's just go with that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, you know, some of whom, you know, responsible for those illicit financial yeah. flows that could help finance this, but never mind that. Um, what I found interesting yeah. is that at the end of it all, there's no doubt we must live with each other as a society again, you know. But at the same time, how do we? I remember when Shaira was shot, um, there were comments about how somebody said, I wish it had been live ammunition, you know, Jeez. those kind of vile, that's not people we want to live with in a society. And I think what's also been fascinating is that it unmasked a lot of progressives. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, which, which, which was amazing because again, we live in this world of duplicity. Mm. We live in a world where people think it's okay to compare a brick to a gun with we have people that think it's completely acceptable, that it's completely normal. And that's not a society I want to be a part of. And this is what's good about it, right? This polarization. I mean, I've seen people who, yeah, who are just going with the flow suddenly become extremely radicalized, mm. right? Just as much as I've seen people who are alleged to be progressive strip naked, you know, they are walking amongst us and we know them for what they are. So I think that's been very, very useful. But in terms of your question about, yeah. you know, this just, response. Just quickly, so before you get yeah. there, I just mm-hmm. want to just, just quickly ask, why do you think it is so polarizing? Because I think it is, I was at a bar the other day and someone, I won't tell the whole story because it didn't turn out so well, yeah. but basically someone turned to my table and it's sort of like, so guys, what do you think of this fees must fall sort of thing? And then just, it got so heated, it got so intense. It goes south fast. Yeah, yeah as soon yeah. as he said that as well, I just put my head yeah, in Yeah, people hand. had to oh, leave. I mean, yeah, people have to walk, yeah. like, leave the, the, yeah. the, the place because that's, you can't sit together anymore. He, that's how heated it yeah. got. But, and I've been trying to figure this out for a while, why people are so extre- emotionally invested in this topic. I think it, it kind of exposes as a society and even the whole black and white thing, you know, that, okay... I can't disagree with a tactic I don't think is appropriate, but then that automatically means I condone this. You know, I condone X. So I can, if I disagree with the fact that bricks were thrown, it means I must condone somebody throwing a brick being shot. That's the approach that's been taken to it, you know. And I think also just the way it's viewed, it's viewed as an isolated event. And I think we're good at disconnecting. These things are also interconnected. The whole stuff mm. about the CEO, what have they said about fees must fall. We, we disconnect them and look at them as single issues. We don't look at the bigger system, what brought us to this point, you know. And even the responses to it become about curbing the event for now. Mm. Let's see how we can kill it for now until it pops back up because eventually they'll get tired, you know. We're not going to give a proper real solution. Let's militarize and securitize, which since the 60s has been shown to increase levels of violence, you know. Let us go against the very own knowledge we have produced at these institutions and respond in that way. It's just an attempt to distract, disconnect and really uphold the design that is not taking us anywhere, that is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Um. This is all ended in a way that I find thoroughly depressing, to be dead honest with you. Um, I, I make no assumptions about what's going to happen in the next little while. Yeah. I, I only, I can only go by the people that I speak with. Yeah. Um, and those are, are people within the movement and, uh, they rely on the university being open and function in a space where they can move around in order for the movement to grow and for it to, to, to exist. Mm. Uh, once it, it's amazing how things die. And this is, you know, from the people that I speak to once they go off campus. It's amazing how things go completely out of control 
once at golf campus and Greg were, were both at that first Bromfontein uh, uh, debacle where, where it was very clear that until the leadership came and took control of the situation in a very, very real way and put their bodies in between protesters and, uh, and, and, and the cops, um, things just were, were totally out of control. So there's that element of it. it the, the, the movement can't really really the, the fires go out once the kids are yeah. or the, the students are off campus um the second thing has been obviously the reaction and now that's the, part of it's the security uh, the, the the sort of the securing of the university spaces in the way that that these institutions have done it it's uh, it's just terrible to see it's it's shocking um and then the notion of, of of you know and again we come right back to our finance minister who is literally just waiting for the stuff to die down and it will so we don't have a proper discussion about it. It is going to die down, and they're going to wait it out until the next budget speech. Are they going to take it seriously in February? Okay. Human beings being what they are, it will have been probably three months since the last protest, the last real protest, the last time FMF was in, was in, the, um, was in the headlines is when you and I will be at Sona um, mm. and then – Going into uh, going into the, to, to the budget speeches uh, a little while after that, so you know all of it would have been forgotten, all of it would have been put put aside. Sure, there'll be a whole bunch of stuff around registration in January, but by the time the decisions are made about where the money is going next year, the stuff will be back of mind, right? Besides, we need a proper conversation about a systemic change within the entire education system. Right, all the way down from you've got kids, right? Kids develop when they're they need to be in a institutional environment by the time they're two. They need to be learning, right? They they can't just be they can't just be floating out there, and that 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 needs to be part of the system. Why is it that sixty year olds are excluded from a conversation about education, right? Why is adult learning something that we don't discuss anymore in in this, in this country or, or have ever discussed? Right, so all of the stuff needs to be woven together again and tied in with a much larger concept of how we educate ourselves, um, and, and that, of course, has been 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 lost in the in, in the way uh, as well. So, it's very interesting that you bring in the school element, yeah. right? A part of the university call has been around issues of decolonization earlier this year, and this started when I looked for this kid from the school for my kid. Well, I remember you had a whole process. Yeah, I had like a, you did a yeah, whole survey. I'm pretty sure there was a spreadsheet. Process. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> but I wrote an article yeah. about just the need to decolonize younger. You know, so you have these kids who can only. Um, express or exercise the imaginations through particular ways of being and then you want to tackle it when they're old we are the parents on this but on the other hand when we talk about you know the protest that's been going on what I found interesting was the narrative around when something goes what is considered to be wrong mm -hmm. right the response from society is but those weren't the protesters those were riffraff riff in our society but for me it is about that it is about that young person who was excluded you know they have every business being a part of Feast Must Fall mm -hmm. it is about the kids who are not even yet born to be a part of Feast Must Fall so I think even just that how yeah that you know the idea of people felt that to say that students weren't violent, they mm. had to demonize people who aren't students who got involved <laughs> when they had every mm. right mm. to get involved. Mm. We're a whole bunch of angry people out here, mm. you know. Yeah, and, and again, you yeah. know, it all feeds, you're right. It all feeds back into how we, into how we're educated, right? Um, of course, there's the de the decolonization element of it, um, realigning how we learn. I don't think that's I don't think that's so terribly surprising that, that we should be calling for that, you know, at the bottom of Africa. It's okay, you know, no one's gonna die, you know, if if we throw a couple of African texts into the curriculum. Although yeah. I think back to what Kokoetsu was saying yeah. before, how this has really um, shown people's true uh, colors, yeah, true selves. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Out. How yeah. many times have you seen on Twitter or something? Oh, I've got all these different searches right yeah. for these different things at different universities. So there's all constant feeds coming through. And there are so many tweets that say, like, decolonize education. Then it's got a picture of just people learning. It's like one of those schools that it's been in the Sunday Times or something like that, learning in, like, a mud school or under a tree. Yeah, or just in a which, few kids, like, in the dust just sitting on the road, and it's, like, decolonized UCC. That's right, which yeah. I think it, it's just a completely racist view of <laughs> yeah. what people are talking about. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that that kind of stuff is just so is so completely silly. It's, it's, it's just um, – I think, I think that idea is particularly exciting. 
you know, hmm. realigning, rethinking once again about how we look. I mean, isn't that how human beings progress? Why can't we have that conversation? Um, but, but again, it's become so massively polarized. Black or white, that's it. Right? No nuance, no gray. But I'm also quite interested in um, just our society, not just education, our ways of being, right? There seems to be a little... There seems to be very little will to reimagine and recreate. It's almost as if this is the way things have always have been, you know, so therefore accept them. Or any time you move away from them, you threaten the country with some kind of, I don't know, like a volcano is going to erupt, like kids are going to learn in the dust or those kind of things. And actually that's not. It's a fear of reimagination, you Mm -hmm. know. It's a fear. It's your inability to recreate. And I think a large part of it stems from we know what we don't want as a society, but I think very few times have we discussed what it is we do want. And often we're governed by fear. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. It's, you know, we can't have, we, we can't think our way out of missionary school education. We can't. Right now. It's just, it, we seem paralyzed. Um, and again, this links back to how we spend money in, in this country. To, to the kind of, it is, we're going to do it this way, but we have to do it for a little bit less, and we've got to be left alone to do it quietly. So, so I'm a little bit optimistic, though, although we can't rethink our way out of this. We're talking mm. about it right now, and clearly there are some people who can. Some of these students who are pushing these issues mm. have started to think like this, and it might not be, that might not have yeah. really spread through society. Yeah. Mm. I'm not sure, you know, it's hard to gauge how much support and how much, um, how many people are thinking like this. I- I'm talking about at but, the policy level mm-hmm. up top, mm-hmm. you know, that there are many, many brilliant ideas out there, uh, being discussed in, in, in silos, 100%, I have no doubt. Um, you know, we, we have these conversations. We, you know, the people we deal with, at the, you know, at the schools have these conversations, but they never seem to filter their way up, at least not yet. And I think that's, I mean, with us at Amount Lirot Mobi, that's been our experience as well. I mean, over the last few weeks, we've reached 101,000 membership, which means 101,000 people who've taken some kind of action in the mm. last couple of weeks, mm. which is quite exciting. So you can see it's people who would before, um, join or support a particular issue, but now suddenly people are moving through issues, you know? Okay. So in broader society, there almost seems to be a will, the ability to think through, but yeah, it's not reflected elsewhere. It's not reflected in certain spaces. But then there's also the thing, I think one of the problems I have is why why have we built a society in which it needs to re- be reflected elsewhere for it to matter, for it to be legitimate? Do you know what I mean? So it's almost this idea. I'm just going to make an example with Twitter, mm. right? So mm. some people would argue that issue X is not being discussed on Twitter okay. as if that means it's not being discussed anywhere, anywhere else, else in the country. Mm. Do you know? The way, I don't know, we have such narrow views of our society and what we recognize as society or as legitimate sources of planning for, as legitimate sources of Knowledge or yeah, building yeah. and whatnot. And it's also reflected in our responses to the Fees Must Fall protests, you know. Which institutions do we read the most about? Where are they based? Yeah. What does that mean about a lot of other things, you know? Because if that's happening with higher education institutions, we can just imagine what's happening in broader society, in general community mm-hmm. protests, in the general things that we just don't hear about, which is why people like Exaro can sign these pledges because some people just don't know what Exaro's been up to. Mm. So you've mentioned a hundred thousand people coming on and trying to, you know, sign a few petitions and get involved. How do you channel that? How do you channel those numbers and that interest into trying to, I mean, towards pressure points that could result in in, in actual changes on these various issues? So I think what we've seen is that, um, so one, we have a distributed campaign platform where people okay. can now launch their own campaigns yeah. away to Dot Mobi. But then we've also seen people come together where, you know, it's about donating to a particular tactic. We took a couple of ads out in the Daily Mail. And people donated to have that run. Um, People taking to, yeah, vigils and whatnot. One of the interesting campaigns we had was DUT, the Durban University of Technology. Mm. About 5,000 students hadn't received confirmation of their qualifications. And one of the students got in touch, started a campaign, you know. Um, They had a meeting, gave the campaign over to the NISFAS guys, and since then 1,500 have received confirmation of their qualifications, which is significant. Suddenly, here's this institution.
institution that wasn't actually getting that much coverage, mm. but there was an issue there and they were able to mobilize in numbers that, you know, incentivize some form of accountability, mm. which is significant, you know. So, yeah, the stuff about amplification of struggles, the stuff about, hey, there's another issue. If you really are about higher education in general, even that University of Technology over there should be supported by us. I mean, that's such a great example of what we're talking about, which is important issue. 5,000 people not receiving confirmation. They take charge of the issue, mobilize support, and something happens. It doesn't have, it need to be on the front pages. It doesn't have to. It's just key people taking action on, on a really important thing in that, in that community. So I think that's a really great example of perhaps what we need more of. No, indeed, indeed. And I, yeah, we're just seeing this happen a lot more, you know, where people suddenly you can tell them about another issue similar to another campaign yeah. that they've joined and they, they go along. I don't know. There's just an energy towards connecting the dots, you know, which is very, very nice to witness. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, you do, I mean, Richard, come to you. You mentioned there's just so much where we're not discussing mm. because we, you know, we see what must fall every day and, Let's protect Che Guevara. Mm. And you mentioned before before we came on air that the drought is gonna be the thing you're gonna you're gonna jump on and zoom in on. Uh, yeah, I yeah. feel like I feel like all of a sudden I feel like we've just slept on climate change. Yeah. You know? Um I, I wonder why I feel that way. Probably because we've slept on climate change. <laughs> um you know, by we I I mean I mean the you know, specifically the South African press and more specifically me. Um, so, you know, I, I would love to start talking about that a lot more because I feel it feeds into just about everything. Um, every single pol- policy change that we have to make. Um, you know, it was interesting. Zuma doesn't give, uh, uh, interviews anymore, but he did to, uh, CCTV. I don't know if you guys recall this. It was a cringeworthy interview yeah, that he gave. Yeah. Um, now, now the interesting thing about that interview is that, you know, CCTV is so slavishly um, you know, obiescent to power that he probably received the questions beforehand and he clearly hadn't prepared. But one of the things that struck me with, with abject terror is that he clearly had given no thought to the environment whatsoever. Um, it was a question about industrial development in Africa. And she was like, well, you, you know, the interview herself was like, well, you know, industrial, you know, like terrify industrial growth has its upsides and its downsides. And Zim was like, no, only upsides. Mm. Right? Do you remember this interview? It was, it, it was terrifying. And it was one of those things that hit me and it's just sort of been growing, this sort of like, this sort of like growing terror inside me. And, and it was capped off by that, by, by traveling through the country and, and looking at the mm. state that we're in. I think what's also fascinating, I think I'm also very, I've become so scared, the conversations about economic growth in this country, mm. you know? Yeah. Everybody talks about this growth yeah. in a, as if it's happening in a vacuum, you know, as if this drought isn't happening, as if the minerals people refer to haven't all been taken out, okay. as if taking out the minerals isn't going to have implications on water resources we already okay, don't Okay, so have. we just want to make a growth and not discuss <laughs> about <laughs> everything. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we're not talking about progress without growth, yeah. mm. right? Mm. Which we really, really should be. And it's going to have an impact. I mean, food prices going up, impact on worker rates, impact on so many other things. I mean, yeah, we've just hit a dangerous territory. I mean, I bet you when the price of avocados goes up at Woolworths again, we're going to hear about this. No, they're not going up, are they? <laughs> what? <laughs> there we go. You see that? <laughs> My shrimp salad, man. <laughs> Can't have that without ever. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We'll take Twitter um, input on what, what, what theme we should go with for next week's movies. We've done gangsters. Around. Maybe sports. Let's do some good sports metaphors next week. We'll, yeah, it'll probably yeah. just switch. It's easier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Greg Nicholson, Richard Poplack, Koketsu Moeti, thank you so much. For everyone tuning in, um, thanks for listening. Please share the podcast with all your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Um, have a wonderful day. Cliffcentral.com.